Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, on Richard Helpy's Common Bridge on YouTube TV and wherever you get your podcast. We've talked a lot about guns and firearms, and there's a couple of cases right now that are front and center in the news. And so we've got an expert with us today in attorney Wolfgang Mueller. He runs his own law practice. He's got a very distinguished background. Wolfgang, welcome to the Common Bridge. So glad you could join us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rich. Pleasure. Our, Wolfgang, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So tell us a little bit, you know, where did you grow up? Uh, what's been your career arc? And, you know, maybe a little personal insight about who you are. First, I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Spent my whole life in the Detroit area. Uh, I'm kind of unique. I went to undergrad at Michigan State University in engineering, and I became an automotive engineer. Then I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan. So on a particular Saturday, it frankly <laughs> doesn't matter to me who wins. I'm, I'm the winner each way. Uh, I love it. <laughs> before I became a lawyer, uh, back in the 80s, I was an automotive engineer for Chrysler Corporation. And then ironically how life turns out, I wanted to be a sports agent, so I figured I'd better go to law school. Then finished law school and became a, a defense attorney working for a law firm defending car companies. Then turned around five years later and started uh, making my name as a product liability lawyer, suing car companies for auto defects, trying to help consumers uh, and improve auto products. So I did a lot of work with airbags in the 90s, late 90s, if you remember, when everybody was putting their children in the front seat of, of vehicles and right. kids were unfortunately getting killed by the power of the airbag. So I did that and then kind of segued into police misconduct over the last 15 years or so. And probably in the last five years, I've focused primarily on wrongful conviction cases where I, if somebody has been exonerated, somebody served a murder, uh, for example, a client of mine did 42 years for a murder he didn't commit. And I try to hold the, the people accountable, uh, who were responsible for him being wrongfully convicted. So I've been doing that for the last five years or so. That's a fantastic background. And I understand you're a top 100 lawyer. I've been I've been given a, some awards. Uh, I'm just a knock around kid from Detroit. <laughs> trying, to, trying to help people if I can. Oh, far too modest. Well, we're really looking to get into that. I think that the, when we talk about the product liability and things that happen in a corporate setting, and then what happens during investigations and where where other everybody plays by the rules or not, I think it's very germane. So we've got a couple of cases right now. There was a horrible tragedy on the scene of a filming of a movie called Rust with a very famous actor, Alec Baldwin. I don't think the core fact is disputed at all that the death was caused by a live round that, that Mr. Baldwin fired. The allegations that he was handed a weapon, told it was a cold gun. You know, again, I don't know the law. And my, if I'm Alec Baldwin, I probably fired lots of prop guns in my time and had a reasonable expectation that I was just going to do that again and completely harmless. But what does the law say about situations like this? I'll tell you, Rich, uh, I've handled a lot of cases in firearms cases and product liability with respect to uh, defective guns. 
But this is kind of a straight-up negligence case. All around the country, you would have the same kind of laws. Anybody in a position of authority has an obligation to act reasonably to protect those around them. You and I do it around the road. It's the same thing on a movie set. Everybody has an obligation, a legal duty to act reasonably to prevent harm to other people who are around them. And in this case, uh, it seems like the fault is layered. Everybody's focusing on the armorer, which, frankly, the real issue is how do live rounds get on a movie set? I did look at something in this past week where they said uh, that they used to kill the time between shoots or between takes shooting target practice with live rounds. Well, you have all kinds of layers of negligence if you have that. Anybody who's been around firearms, you don't have to be any kind of firearms expert to know these are dangerous weapons. These are the kind of things that kill people if they're not handled properly. And you have to have, you can have fault from the armor, house, the woman, doesn't know that a live round is in the in the weapon. And the assistant director who handed it to, uh, to Alec Baldwin, telling him it's a cold gun, you wonder what his responsibility was, why he was even the one doing it. But if I'm Alec Baldwin, and I, like you said, I'm sure he's been in movies and around movies where people have fired guns all the time. You're a non-expert. That's why we rely on experts. We place our trust in the hands of the expert. And when they don't do what they were supposed to do, these kind of tragedies happen. This To have live rounds on a movie set is a tragedy waiting to happen. Exactly. And so my question, like, is someone or somebody's always responsible for the death? And does this mean there's a civil penalty, a criminal penalty, or both? Or is one person opined, that's workers' comp? Lots of people had to do the wrong thing to end up in this tragedy. So where in the chain of events does responsibility start and end? I can tell you, it starts, you work from the bottom toward the top. First, you want to look at the qualifications of this person as young as I'm told the armorer. Uh, then there's a prop director. But the producers are, are responsible for the hiring, the quality of the people that they hire. Uh, ultimately, it would be the most direct responsibility of the armorer whose job is to ensure that the weapons that are being fired are fired safely. And you need to have redundancies in the system. And that's where I think it falls apart. When you design products, there are always plan A, plan B, and if this doesn't work, plan C as safety measures to make sure that if something fails, we call it failing safe. It's a fail-safe method. That didn't happen here. And like I said, the story was Alec Baldwin shouldn't have been firing the weapon during a dress rehearsal or a rehearsal. That kind of is going to happen. That's foreseeable. You can't have a live round anywhere near weapons. And I know there are, there are talk now, and Dwayne Johnson, I, I just read, is talking about, I don't want to have real guns on my set, and we have to disable the guns, and there are now technologies that you can, almost through computer graphics, mimic the firing and certainly the sound. So that might be in the future. I also heard that there was talk that you need to have certified police officers be in charge. Well, I don't know that you need that. You have to have certified, qualified armorers who know what they're doing. They don't have to have a necessarily the law enforcement background. But I will tell you this. I'm sure there are a lot of retired Los Angeles County uh, firearms instructors who are going to be very busy in the Hollywood scene in the next few years. That I can assure you. I would imagine that's correct. So this has happened in New Mexico. If you were the prosecutor, what do you think you'd be thinking about in terms of 
criminal charges, if any, to whom and what they might be. Maybe there's none. But let me just start on the criminal front. Anything in there that, based on your experience, that, you know, that's going to be a problem and a prosecutor might make a charging decision on it? I think where the decision has to go is, is this conduct so culpable, so reckless, given the, the potential outcomes that you could charge a person with negligent homicide? That, I think, would be the most likely charge, if any, on from a, from a criminal standpoint. And that would likely be the armor, the one who's most directly responsible for ensuring that the weapons are safe to be used. Ultimately, that falls at her feet. And, you know, I've, I've now I've heard, as, as we probably all have, some idea that it was sabotaged and prosecutor doesn't think much of that theory. Frankly, neither do I. But that's a defense attorney trying to defend his client, the, the armorer. And so that's what you get. You mentioned something about workers' compensation. Yeah. All around the country, the law is workers' compensation is the exclusive remedy of an employee as against the employer. In other words, if you get hurt on a job site, if your coworker is responsible for you being hurt, you can't sue the company because you're getting workers' compensation. In a situation like this, I don't think that that would be the case. People like the director, people like the stars, they're all independent contractors. I doubt that they're a W-2 employee of the production company. They just don't do it that way. So the idea that workers' comp might be the exclusive remedy and you don't have the possibility of civil lawsuit, I, I doubt that that's the case here. Well, let's take a look at this from the civil side of this. A plaintiff's attorney hired by the family of the deceased. Any ideas on what legal theory they might pursue for what's clearly a wrongful death? Well, certainly what you're looking for in these kind of situations is you start with somebody like the armorer and the allegations of negligence. I do personal injury uh, plaintiff's work. So this is the kind of case that would be right up my alley if this happened. Uh, You're looking, you sue the armorer, you're suing the production company right up the chain of command because all of these companies have uh, have insurance policies. And ultimately, if you sue the armor individually and she's not covered by insurance, she might be making a decent living, but nothing that would ever cover damages in a civil lawsuit. All of these companies, including the production companies, have layers and layers of insurance, and all of the people working under them, including the armorer, Alec Baldwin, everybody else, is what's called an insured, a covered insured. So that those people are covered under the umbrella policies, and that's what you're looking at. But you're also you're looking at negligent hiring in terms of what did they do to investigate the background of this 23-year-old? And have there been other allegations? I heard early on there was some talk that uh, there were some allegations that she was sloppy on some other set and complaints about her work. So what did they do in terms of vetting her qualifications? That's that's a big consideration when you're talking about how was the company negligent for this independent contractor. Well, you're the one who hired her. So what did you do to vet that? This is really helpful. And before we move on to the second case, any other questions or angles or insights that you might have for our audience? I think uh, always the goal of civil litigation, which is what I do, it's twofold. Obviously, you want to get compensation for your clients for the harm that was caused. I mean, she died with a husband and two little children, right? Uh, and and the lifelong loss that's involved there. But the other thing is to how do we make the system better? Civil litigation for whatever people want to talk about lawyers who sue people, they're responsible for helping workplace safety get better. 
automotive safety, certainly in what I used to do, we kind of litigated our way out of business when the airbag designs got so much better and, not, and people started not putting their kids in the front seat of cars. That's kind of the idea. You want to litigate your way out of business because things get better. And, and what we want to do in a case like this is make the industry wake up and take proactive measures to do this. I think now they are going to be sweeping changes in how Hollywood does things uh, because people tend to get complacent. The last big death on a, on a set with a gun was Brandon Lee, and that was 30 years ago. So as time goes on and as, as things stay safe, people like human nature tend to get complacent, thinking that it can never happen. But when you're talking about firearms, Rich, you always have to bring your A game because if there is a mistake, it's not a small one. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, again, I'm a you know, software engineer by, by training. And so I kind of look at the sequence of events. Well, if something didn't happen further up the chain. Like if there were no live bullets and dot, da, 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 you know, and where, where does that responsibility begin and end? Which kind of takes us to the second case that's very much in the news today up in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, I guess the trial's being held in Madison. The murder trials for Kyle Rittenhouse. I think everybody knows the basic facts. He was a 17-year-old living with his mother in Illinois. His father, grandmother, cousin, other family members lived in Kenosha. He went there allegedly with a medical bag and certainly with an AR-15 automatic rifle. And he goes into a situation. There's fireworks and explosions going on, arson, destruction of buildings. That's the, the context of what's going on. And does that context give any bearing on the specific charges that they brought up versus a peaceful street? Does the, the fact that there was civil unrest or rioting or however you want to caption it, does that make any difference in the eyes of the law based on what the individual did? It really doesn't make so much in the eyes of the law in terms of the legal theories and the the charges that are the criminal charges he's facing. But in the context of uh, on both sides of the coin, you know, and a good lawyer can argue both sides from the prosecutor standpoint. You have what you're basically calling vigilante justice. He's going to protect where the Black Lives Matter and all the buildings are getting destroyed, and then he's part of the Blue Lives Matter movement, and he's going to he's going to take it upon himself, a 17-year-old kid with a gun to go and save the buildings and save property where he hasn't been asked to do that. So he's he's instigating potential violence, and especially in an open carry where you're carrying that rifle out in the open with other people. From a defense well, standpoint. I think he testified, uh, Rittenhouse testified that uh, he was asked by the car mart to protect the property, but he wasn't near the property, I don't believe, at the time of the shooting. But, you know, you raise a great question about vigilanteism. Should Kyle Rittenhouse have had the rifle in the first place? He's 17 years old. I've not read or heard anything about him violating Wisconsin law. But do you know whether he should have been able to possess the weapon or not? I think if you're under 18, I don't think you can possess a rifle uh, for other uses other than hunting. Uh, And then certainly the open carry laws have different rules and with respect to handguns versus rifles. 
uh, with respect to registering handguns versus not having to do that. But I think other than for hunting purposes, a kid his age shouldn't have been out on the street with a rifle. Yeah, it's it's curious to me why they didn't charge him with uh, displaying a weapon. I know in certain states that you can't carry it around. And I've been in other states where I've seen people parading around, all of them carrying, you know, military style weapons and going through, you know, fast food places. All right. But enough about Texas. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So, so, and that's, again, I'm trying to think about these sequence of events. So one could argue that if Rittenhouse never had the firearm, nothing would have happened to the people that were ultimately shot. Now, the first shooting is a fellow named Joseph Rosenbaum. is apparently a very angry guy, yelling things. He's uh, alleged to be setting fires. And that that there was a shot fired that at Rittenhouse turned, and here's this guy rushing at him. And now the testimony is suggesting that Rosenbaum did grab the weapon and Rittenhouse fired. So in that first instant, if you were looking at this from the criminal standpoint, what are the standards for self-defense versus wanton murder? And is his legal possession of the gun, does it have any bearing on that second act? It really comes down to if, uh, if the law focuses on the instant the trigger is pulled, what was happening? Okay. Was the person in reasonable fear for his or her own safety? Um, <clears throat> and different... States have different rules. Uh, if this was a police officer, for example, who had shot somebody, you're in in the Sixth Circuit in Michigan where I practice. We have what's called a segmented rule, uh, and they focus on the instant the trigger is pulled. What is happening? Are you afraid for your own life, or afraid for the life of somebody around you? In this case, I think the most problematic case for the for the defense is probably the first guy. Because the second one, as I understand it, came up to him while he was on the ground. He had fallen and swung a skateboard right at his head. Well, you could certainly consider that potentially deadly force, which if, if you're Kyle Rittenhouse, you're in fear for your life. So he fired. The third one, too, pointed a gun, admittedly pointed a gun at Kyle Rittenhouse first. Well, if somebody's pointing a gun at me, and I have a gun, I'm firing to make sure he doesn't fire first. So that's a, that's a big problem for the prosecution. It kind of goes into how this trial has been going, really, with, um, with the prosecution and how, how they could not expect or didn't anticipate that this was going to be the testimony of some of the witnesses. I don't think, from, from, from a standpoint of just a bystander, being a trial lawyer, it's not going very well for the prosecution, certainly not not like they intended it to go. I uh, did watch some of the trial. And again, remember, I'm not a, a lawyer. Okay, so I'm looking at this from a lay perspective, and I, I don't have the courtroom experience that, that you bring. But just trying to say, you know, if I was a juror, what would I be thinking? And I did watch the third person that was shot through the arm, survived, admitted that he did approach Rittenhouse, that Rittenhouse did not threaten him in any way until he pulled his gun out. And then the prosecutor said, well, but the gun was, and I'm holding my, for my listeners, I'm holding my uh, uh, hand uh, perpendicular to the floor. Uh, it, was, it was pointed like this and, you know, not, you know, in a classic, you know, target shooter stance with two hands on the gun. 
And I'm thinking, are you seriously? I mean, <laughs> that gun's right. deadly no matter how you're you're right. holding it. And then when we look at this as a public matter, early on, I was reading a online story and the 17th paragraph finally said that this third person had a gun. And then they said, but there was no indication he was going to fire it. I'm thinking, and I'm I'm like with you, like, no, there's a gun that's pointed at me. I pretty much, what's the proof positive that he's going to use it? You got a bullet in your head. You know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me that this person, you know, wouldn't be self-defense. But is there any theory in law about that, that circumstance on pulling the trigger, you know, each time? was preceded by something else. By way of example, the third person, what if he thought, hey, you know what? This is a serial killer out shooting up people. I'm going to go stop him. Kind of legit reason to to draw down on him. Does any of that play in about what happened before that instant under the eyes of the law? I think from a prosecutor standpoint, it comes down to the argument, the broader argument you're trying to make. If I'm the defense attorney, I'm focused strictly on what was my client thinking, working back from the third person when a gun is pointed at him, and that's an absurd distinction to try to make on a part of the prosecutor, whether it's like this, like some rap video, versus how you would normally point a gun, how you're taught to to shoot. That's ridiculous, because you know, and I know, if somebody's pointing a gun at me like that, it's either me or him, and if I have a gun, I hope it's me who's going to fire first. So if you're as a defense attorney, and that really, I think, spreads to going backwards, the fear that he was in as he's on the ground and somebody's swinging a, a skateboard to his head. And even the first guy, when he says he grabbed my gun, if you believe that, there's a fear that this guy who has been aggressive, and, and if you heard Rittenhouse's testimony, was aggressive toward him. If that's the case, if he grabs my gun, I'm the next guy. So it doesn't have to be that the person was strictly unarmed. I think that's obviously the prosecutor's point, but the defense lawyers are making some good headway in terms of what was the fear. And I think Rittenhouse, normally you would never want your kid, and I say kid, a 17, 18 year old kid to be on the stand against a veteran prosecutor. That's generally not going to go well for the person who's never been in court before, never testified before. And prosecutors try cases like brushing their teeth. So you get a 17-year-old unsophisticated kid, and things could go very badly for him being on the stand. But from everything I heard and and watched, and his emotions seemed very real, they're trying to show the reasonable fear that he had for his own life. And so I think think there's going to be a close call. I think the defense, it's not nearly as cut and dry as I thought it was going to be going into the trial. One of the the things I thought about was, if there is some part, let's let's call it vigilantism as an extreme or just, you know, illegal possession of a firearm. Could the prosecution say, look, you shouldn't have had the fight. You brought the gun in there and that's what caused everything. Therefore, you can't say that, you you know, self-defense is a, is a valid uh, argument for you because you shouldn't have been there in the first place with that weapon. Is it, is there, does the law care about, you know, the, how that weapon got to the scene? See, I don't know, frankly, what the Wisconsin jury instructions are going to be like. You would hope that it's broad if you're the prosecutor, 
and I think they're, they've got some inkling, they know what the law is, that, that it might be. Was it foreseeable that you coming down there and walking around with an open carry rifle in a situation already that's overflowing with violence and, and mayhem that you're going to contribute to? Is it foreseeable that that kind of thing would happen? If that is, then it plays into the prosecutor's hands. If you try to segment it into what was this kid thinking at the moment he fired the gun, now you've got somebody grabbing his gun, and it's him or me, somebody who's been aggressive. That's number one. Second person, swinging at, I'm on the ground, swinging a skateboard at my head. That's a deadly weapon. Third guy, pointing a gun at me. So it's all kind of, it, it kind of goes into, well, you were in this car accident, but you had a suspended license. So regardless of if it was your fault or not, you shouldn't have been out on the road that night. That doesn't really focus on the conduct at the time of the crash and whose fault it may be. That's, I think, an important distinction. I don't think I don't think he certainly should have been on the street legally carrying a gun. I don't think he could. But did that precipitate those shootings? It's, it depends on what the jury thinks of the actions of the victims, because they're kind of on trial, too, right now. Oh, indeed. And and that's where I was asked the first question. I said, does the context of what was going on, because there were many guns on site, there were guns that were fired there. That's indisputable that there's nobody's uh, denying that there were gunshots being fired by other people. Also fireworks going off and fireworks being used as incendiary devices. So these particular gunshots did kill somebody. And I haven't heard any movement on the part of the prosecution to say, you know, well, wait a minute, this whole thing can't comes from your illegal possession of this gun. So I'm kind of thinking, well, either they're saving that or it was legal for him to carry it. Now they've got to decide how he's going to use it. And, and to, your, to the point you just made about putting kind of the victims or the people that got shot on trial, there was actually, this was a CBS News report that said this third guy said he was in fear for his life. And when he was shot, never mentioned in the entire news that he had a Glock in his hand and was prepared to shoot Rittenhouse. But that says more about our media reporting, which is why we're doing this show. Wolfgang, what does the law say about provoking an attack and then using deadly force? And did Rittenhouse's action rise to the level of provoking an attack? Generally, the, the law is you can't instigate a situation and then defend yourself by saying, I had to shoot my way out of it. Yeah. Situation that you started. It, it kind of goes back to what was happening before the first guy got shot and the circumstances of just chaos in general. Remember, nobody else was shooting anybody that night. Nobody else shot anybody that night. So it's the kind of argument you want to make is if you're there trying to take justice into your own hands and the law into your own hands, it's foreseeable you not being trained that things can get out of hand. I think that's that's going to be the prosecutors. It's the broader picture of that's why we have police officers. That's why we have laws. That's why we don't have vigilante justice because we can't have untrained 17-year-olds taking the law into their own hands. These kind of things are foreseeable. These kind of things will happen when it gets out of hand like that. That's why we have training for 
police officers all the time. Shoot, no shoot situations. They're always training. So it's it's muscle control and, and you know, second instinct. It's just ingrained in them because of the training. When you have people walking around 17 years old and you're carrying a, a deadly weapon, you have panic reactions is what happens. And so that's the broader picture is for the prosecutor. That Look, that makes a lot of sense to me. And because of the so much has become politicized. I've heard people saying, well, you know, had the police been doing their job protecting property and doing their job and, you know, not allowing mayhem in the streets, then wouldn't have been necessary for citizens to come in. I mean, you know, you look at uh, the experiences in Florida, uh, you know, it brought out the National Guards, like, yeah, you can protest, but you're not burning the place down. And of course, in Detroit, I think, you know, James Craig, who was on this show a couple episodes ago, talked about the steps they took to work with community groups, to set boundaries and to support legal protests, but not allow the city to burn. If you remember in Detroit, there was the initially a lot of chaos, but then there were a lot of peaceful protests where they're marching down the street without the vandalism. Right. And and it gets into the broader, and I don't want to get there, and you don't want to get there, but it becomes the Black Lives Matter, and it divides around, along racial lines, and Blue Lives Matter, and every life, every life matters. You start getting so politicized about that. If you look at this case, it's just you can't take justice into your own hands and being untrained to do it. That's a recipe for disaster. Just kind of like on the movie set, you have you have people taking target practice with live rounds. And then hours later, you're handing a gun that was used in the target practice to an actor who's untrained. It's a it's a recipe for disaster. World class idiocy. And that's why I think the prosecutor, if they can if they can drive that point home, this all stems from an untrained kid trying to be a hero in vigilante justice and protect what property you end up taking lives and property is never the excuse or the justification for taking a life. So if you were going to be the prosecutor and you wanted to convict this young man on something. What do you think you'd charge him with that you think you could get a conviction, given the self-defense around the specific three shootings? I think you probably have to charge on all three because it'd be tough to make a distinction in that kind of time. But I certainly would have known what my witnesses were going to say, the third witness, the third victim specifically, to know that he would admit on cross-exam that he pointed the gun, his gun, at Rittenhouse first. You have to be very judicious. And these are high-profile cases with a lot of, as you know, a 17-year-old kid made a $2 million bond. Well, that's a lot of people are behind somebody to be able to do that. So there are a lot of political and, and backroom things going on. You have to be very cautious in bringing your case to make sure you have a, I'm going to call it a safe case a good, solid case that's not going to be subject to surprises. I guess that's the biggest surprise to me in the whole trial was this idea of uh, the third victim saying, I pointed the gun at him first. Yeah, and, and it seemed they got there on the other two guys, too, that they, there's not yeah. much discussion about the second guy. Okay, it's, you know, clear, try to hit a guy with a skateboard. And the first one now where they're saying, yeah, it looks look at this video, and he's trying to grab his gun. Wolfgang, this has really been interesting. What didn't we cover that maybe we should have discussed? I think really uh, we've covered everything. It's just the policy changes that need to happen in 
the movie industry, I think they need to look at seriously how can they ensure, given that if something goes wrong in this situation, it goes wrong horribly. I think what can they do to make sure that it doesn't happen? And if it becomes, you know, guns are so real looking nowadays that the police officers will always tell you if, if they shoot somebody, I thought it was a real gun. It turns out it was a plastic toy gun. Yeah. But I thought it was real. So they're able to make those guns. How, how they're going to do it in Hollywood, I think they need to now buckle down and really have layers of control. You have to have redundancy. You as a software engineer, me as an automotive engineer. In, when you're designing anything, you're building in safety. You have to build in redundancies. And I don't think they had that in Hollywood. And as, as the Rittenhouse case now, it's going to play out. It's going to go to a jury probably by the end of tomorrow. We'll see how, how well, I guess it's going to be a, a decision on how well did the, the prosecutor do presenting his side of the case and not getting surprised. In, indeed. Uh, any closing thoughts? This has been a fascinating discussion. Any closing thoughts for our audience? I, I, I really appreciate your show because these, the Rittenhouse case especially, focuses on a lot of things that are in the front of our minds now in society, Black Lives Matter, racism, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, conservative liberals, and how they approach it and how they slant it in the media. And you're just trying to, let's address what happened and how do we fix it? Indeed. That's that's what the Common Bridge is about. Uh, Wolfgang, you've been a great guest and really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on here. You're very knowledgeable and very impressive and and I appreciate you carving time out of your extremely busy day and best of luck to you in the continued work for justice and freeing those that are wrongfully convicted and, and making sure that our law enforcement, by and large, most of them doing a great job, but making sure that all of them do that. This is Rich Helpy with our special guest, Wolfgang Mueller, talking about firearms in our society and two very high-profile cases. Until next time, this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helby.